Jesus' name. Amen. Mark, you know, the, one of the best things about the singing was watching the crowd out here. Okay, like, you know, when they're doing this, this thing like this, right? Did you see Jenna Berryhill going like this? Or Bruce Butler, one of our mayors? I mean, I know he's a little timid, but that little thing where they're doing this, how does Bruce do that in his seat? Bruce, right? Bruce is twisting it down. I like that. That's good. Silver thorn Patty hair. Wolf. Right. Sure. And what, what's this it. you doing? Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> it's hard not to dance. Those songs it's are hard not to dance. To dance. Did you guys cool. enjoy that? Yeah. That was great, cool. wasn't it? <laughs> oh, it was so fun. All right, pull out your uh, bulletins if you have one. And uh, on the inside, on the right side, a couple of things I want to call attention to here. Um, right in the middle, the big box, attention men, uh, especially those of you that are just new back for the summer. We still have our men's ministry going on Wednesday mornings, Iron Hour at 6.30, breakfast and discussion. We're having some great discussions. So let me encourage you to come to that. Um, the women's meeting, the, the women's ministry is not meeting at the church, but if you look at the top under the summer calendar on Thursdays, they're over at the Red Buffalo Cafe in Silverthorne. And it's worth, uh, if you're a woman, it's worth going. Now, as a senior pastor, I love to crash that party from time to time, and I show up with a cup of coffee, and they give me about five minutes before they kick me out. But it's worth coming to. Also, one of the things you won't find in here this week, but we already started, is a DCC Jeep Club. So if you like four-wheeling, stand out there, Bob, in the back. Bob's the leader of the DCC Jeep Club. So um, you can call the church office every Saturday. We go do some trail somewhere. We've got about eight or nine Jeeps and one Toyota, I think. We do allow imposters in. Uh, It is a Jeep Club, after all. So make sure you come to that. Okay, we have several things I'd like to pray for this morning. Um, Some of you will recognize it as we pray, but the one thing many of you may not know was the shooting they had in Florida. Uh, I've already heard about it from a bunch of you. Thanks for letting me know that. I don't watch the news on Saturdays and Sundays usually, and uh, as many as 50 people were killed, so some shooter in a nightclub went in, and I want to pray for those people as well. So let's just stop and take a moment and lift up some of the needs of our own community and our nation to the Lord. Father, first of all, thank you for VBS. Thank you for all these children that were here, Lord. And uh, what a very, very wonderful and delightful time. And Lord, I am personally grateful for all the people sitting here because they're the ones that gave financially to make it happen. We do have the volunteers who served, and I'm grateful for them. But I'm just thankful for people that, that make it a priority to help us in our uh, county to reach out. Lord, I pray for those children that are here, that were here, that they don't yet know what their own faith is. That's something they're wrestling with. I pray that perhaps this week gave them some thoughts and ways to think about it and maybe some answers uh, about Jesus. Father, I pray for Father Michael. Um, again, Lord, uh, as he is fighting such a brutal, deadly, aggressive brain cancer, God, we know that without your involvement, um, his days are numbered and uh, soon. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to, to strengthen him. And Father, I just pray that you would heal him during this time. I pray, Lord, that you would watch over that flock. I know they love him dearly because of his, his passion for them and his prayers and his love and the way he reaches out to them. So I pray that you would protect them.
Lord, I pray for Lord of the Mountains as they're in a pastoral search during this time. Lord, we as a church know what that's like when I came to be in a transition time and just the insecurities and the questions that arise. I pray that you would watch over them and bring them the pastor that you want them to have. Lord, someone to share about your son and his love. Father, I pray for the uh, shooting in Florida. Lord, again, every time this happens, I'm just amazed. I, I can't in any part of my mind imagine how this would happen. And yet, Lord, it did. Father, I pray for the families of the victims, uh, both those who died and those who are injured. There's many more who are injured. I pray, Lord, that you would somehow be gracious to them and bless them during this time. Lord, uh, let that community rise up and support those people and help them. Uh, Lord, I'm sorry that we have this happen. Uh, This is the reason your son came, was because of these very things. And so, Father, show grace and help, uh, help them. And Lord, I pray for our own country as we are in election year this year, Lord. Um, Lord, I will encourage everyone here, and I'm sure we will vote our conscience, but Lord, our, our faith is not in statistics, it's not in surveys, it's in you. So Lord, we ask you to appoint as our next president the one that you want us to have. And Father, I pray that you would take advantage of this opportunity, and for those in our country that don't know you, that this might be the time when they would come to know you. Thank you, Lord. And we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, we're starting a series in Psalms. That's the theme for this summer. It's uh, looking into a mirror, the mirror for our souls. And today we're going to look in Psalm, uh, the very first Psalm, Psalm 1. But before we get there, I just have a couple of thoughts I wrote down about the Psalms. Why are we looking at the Psalms? How important are the Psalms? You see, the Psalms capture the entire Bible. Everything that you see in the Bible, can be found in the Psalms. Let me say it another way. The Psalms are used throughout the New Testament to help us understand what was happening with Jesus, why God sent Jesus. The Psalms capture the entire Bible. They provide a verbal portrait gallery, if you will, of who God is. They're one of the great places to go to learn about God. He's called our creator, our redeemer, our shepherd, on and on and on. You know many of the metaphors. The Psalms, I think, are important. How many of you have read a Psalm in your lifetime or heard one read? Let me see. It should be just about everybody here because they're almost all over the place. Perfect. So the Psalms give us portraits. They give us portraits of who God is. The Psalms give us language. If you were to stop for a moment and brainstorm and say, okay, as Americans, what are the things that describe our culture that we all um, connect with? What do you think? Throw out a couple of things. What describes our culture? Maybe the songs that we sing, the history that we have. What makes our culture what it is? Cars. Cars. Okay. What else? Freedom. Freedom. Woodstock. (laughs) Oh, wait, I'm a little old. I'm kind of dating myself, aren't I? (laughs) All right. You see how if we just took the time and thought, we'd be able to come up with things that define us. The Psalms, they defined, they gave language to the ancient Israelites to describe God and their relationship with them, with God, and they do the same for us. We're the same. They help give us language to express, and sometimes that's hard to do, isn't it? When something tragic happens, we're looking for words to make sense of it. When something tragic happens in our culture, like in Florida, or perhaps some of you. Some of you may be going through a very tragic time right now. I get that. I lost my first wife. I I know what that's like. I've lost friends. And so the Psalms give us language to help make sense of that. The primary purpose of the Psalms in ancient Israel was to give them 
a means of worship. It was almost like a songbook, if you will, a psalm book. And they were meant to be sung together. And there's a variety of authors that contributed to the psalms. David is the most uh, one well-known anyway. The psalms gave the Israelites a way of personally connecting with God. So when David would write a song and he would write about his personal experience, I, the people could relate to that. It's, much, it's what happens up here. So when I talk about losing my first wife, those of you that have lost a spouse can connect with that a little bit. That's what the psalms do. They give us a means of doing it. Now, what's wonderful about the psalms is that they're meant for the community. So if I were to ask how many of you lost a spouse, a bunch of hands would go up, or how many of you have lost a child, more, some other hands would go up. How many of you, and I won't do this, by the way, how many of you have struggled with alcohol addiction or some other addiction, other hands would go up. So, so when you're finding yourself in a psalm, guess what? Your neighbors are finding themselves there as well. It's just something we do. These psalms are wonderful. Now, we're not going to have time to look at all of them. I wish we did, but we don't. They capture our souls. They become a mirror for us to look at. Picture that. They become a mirror for us, not only as individuals, that will happen, but as a community of faith. They become a mirror for us to look into and say, what do we learn about ourselves? What do we learn about the Lord because of that in our relationship with Him? And not only that, they, they help us articulate our feelings, they give us language, but they minister to us. That's what they're there for, to minister to us. So when we look at a lament psalm, for instance, somebody who's grieving, and you begin to see how they turn to the Lord and the Lord interacts with them, and some of you have experienced God's grace, right? How many of you have experienced God's grace in significant ways? Yeah, most of you. So these psalms will mean something to you. Finally, it's important for us to read the psalms in anticipation of who Jesus is because the New Testament authors use the psalms all over the place to make sense of this Messiah who came for us. So every step of the way when we look at psalms, we're going to stop and point toward the Messiah. And we're going to say, hmm, who is this Messiah? And what do these psalms say about him? So we're going to start in Psalm 1, the very first psalm. You see, the very first psalm is an invitation. When we get through it, it's an invitation to enter the literary sanctuary. So just like when you walked into the physical sanctuary of the temple, you experienced some degree of intimacy with God, when you enter into the literary sanctuary of the psalms, you experience the same thing, intimacy with God. And the psalm is going to do that. So let's just kind of look at it, say a couple things about it. Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. Now, the first thing I want you to know is, I want you to observe, is these verbs here uh, communicate an increasing degree of intimacy. All right? So walking is not as intimate as standing with someone, which is not as intimate as sitting with someone. And so blessed or happy is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. Or stand the next level in the way that sinners take. Or sit in the company of mockers. Now we've gone one step further. Not only are we sinners, but, but we're, we're shying away from those who are making fun of Christianity. We're not agreeing with them. My own church here, I know many of you are visitors. By the way, welcome. Glad that you're here. But my own church, I've said many times, don't ever be ashamed to call yourself a Christian. Don't. 
Don't be afraid to talk about Jesus. The world doesn't know who he is. They formed their opinion based on stereotypes and what the media says, maybe an experience they had. But the truth is they don't really know who he is. Don't ever be ashamed to call yourself a Christian. But that's very different than saying, I'm going to associate with, because I'm ashamed or embarrassed, with those who mock Christianity. I don't let people mock Christianity. When I'm with somebody and they mock Christianity, I ask them why they're doing it. That's just my style. Why'd you just mock Christianity? You'd be astounded at the answers I get when you ask somebody that. Why'd you just do that? No, let's don't do that. Because that's what brings joy. But whose delight, so remember, see, blesses the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Really? The law of the Lord? If I were to ask each of you, which adjectives would you use to describe the law? Here's what I often get. I'd get this in the classroom. Uh, impossible. Rigid. Unbending. Legalistic. And you could fill in a whole bunch more then why does almost every author that talks about the law use positive terms? Holy, righteous, good, perfect, makes one happy. Teach me your law, O Lord. David cried that out many times in the Psalms. Teach me your law, O Lord. Why did they have such a positive thought toward it? And we have a negative thought. I got some thoughts on that. I know it surprises many of you. The, uh, you got to remember when the law was given to Moses. It's a, very, um, it's a very dark world. They don't know, they don't know a fraction of what we know today about creation. They don't know how things came about. Science, chemistry, all that. They don't know any of that. And here, God comes along and speaks. But it's in a world where the gods never spoke. Well, God tells us later on that's because none of them are real. And so God, the gods never spoke. And so how would you figure out what a God wants if he never speaks? If he's not real, but you think he's real. They had all kinds of practices to figure that out. They would, they would butcher an animal, and they would take the heart, and they would chop it in half. And depending on how it fell, they would discern God's will. By the way, that still happens in many countries today. If you travel to the great Hindu temple in Madurai, India, there's a stone statue of a, uh, a woman who's naked giving birth to a child, and the young mothers want to know if God's, the gods are going to bless them with fertility this year. So they, they buy these little pallets of butter about an inch, and they throw it, just like they do the big elephants. They throw it, and if it sticks, then they're going to get pregnant. Well, how would you know if the gods never spoke? How would you figure that out? Our God spoke. Our God spoke. And so when he gave the law... They use wonderful terms to describe it because our God spoke, spoke into darkness to help them make sense of what to do. Number one, not only what does he expect, because you see the ancients thought of the gods as gods to be appeased because they didn't want them angry. Nobody wants angry gods, and so their job was to appease them. And so our God spoke, and, and what did he say? He said a variety of things. Ultimately, he said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life for you. Those are Jesus' famous words in Mark 10. And so the giving of the law was a delightful thing. It was a wonderful thing. Now we look back on those 613 commands in the Mosaic Law, and we scratch our head on half of them going, what? What? What, is that? what does that make sense? And the reason why God gave those laws, yes, to protect them, but also to make them look different than the people around them. 
He wanted them to look different. Why? I've asked the question of our church several times, why does God bless the nation? Why? There's really only one reason. So that that nation will attract the other nations to come to him. That's why. So why did God want the Israelites to look different? So that they would start attracting the people around them to come closer. That's what it means to be a holy nation, is to be something different. And so these laws that we have are very, very important. So now you read in here, the one who is happy is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. He delights in the law of the Lord. The law is a good thing. Another point about the law that's worth thinking about, would God ever ask you to do something that is not in your best interest? Would he? I've had this conversation many times. No, he wouldn't. But what he asks is often contrary to what we're accustomed to hearing or thinking. Let me give you a simple example. All right, how many of you have given something that you earned, maybe it's money or a possession of something uh, that you earned that was yours, you gave it to somebody who was really needy, much needier than you? Let me see your hands. How many of you have done it? I suspect most of you have at least once in life. All right, did you feel the, ex- the excitement of that? Did it bring you joy? Was it fun to give something away that you earned that somebody that couldn't afford it? All right, now, the world would tell us that happiness will come by accumulating things, wouldn't it? And that's not what happens. If you're curious, go to a website called givingpledge.org. Warren Buffett has challenged the wealthiest families in America to give away at least half of their wealth before they die. GivingPledge.org is the website where they post their letters making their pledges. Yeah, you'll see Mark Zuckerberg. You'll see, uh, you'll see all the great and wealthy people that you know. Warren Buffett has committed to give away 99% of his wealth before he dies. He has his public letter there doing that. Somewhere along the way, they learn that what's best interest of culture and for their own joy is to start giving it away. But the world wouldn't tell us that, would it? Now, here's what happens in the Bible. When you look in the Bible, I think of this as a coin with two sides. On one side is what we think of as sin. Ooh, it's such a hard word, isn't it? The things we shouldn't do. On the other side is what we think of in terms of blessing the things we should do. So when we look on the positive side, it says to help the poor, help the needy, help the widows, help those who are less fortunate than you. On the sin side, it says, don't store up treasures on earth where rust and moth, blah, blah, blah. You know the language. Store up treasures in heaven, right? And so we as a church, not our church, but the universal church in America, we do a fantastic job of highlighting the sinful side. We forget this side. They go together. The only way you would know that it's wonderful to give things away is by doing it. That's the purpose of the law is to protect you. And God desires that you figure out what that blessing looks like. He's the one that created you, so he knows the best way. You could pick any commandment, and we could have a great discussion on how does that lead to ultimate fulfillment. Ultimate fulfillment. So no wonder the psalm starts with the language that blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on his law day and night. What a wonderful thing. If you start with the premise that God really desires the best for you because he's the one that created you and knows you, then you're going to explore these commands and you're going to look and say, why would God do that? I had a young lady sit with me two weeks ago in coffee and say, 
why would God want me, not want me to be intimate with my boyfriend? Isn't that a great question? You have to see me afterwards to hear my answer. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. These are symbols. These are metaphors for life, for energy. Aren't they? They are. You know what this psalm teaches us? If we follow God, we find true freedom. And if we don't, we find prison. We find ourselves in prison, locked up. I can't tell you the number of times since I've been up here three years, I've sat in coffee shops with people who were raised in Christian homes, young people, and they were taught good principles. And they came up here and they push all that away. I get it. I did that. I did that. And they push it away. And next thing you know, they find themselves in trouble. They find themselves in trouble. They're in trouble with the law. Maybe they're driving under influence or intoxicated. They shouldn't. Maybe they got themselves in a relationship that they don't like. Maybe they're doing drugs. I sat with somebody recently that said, I, I, I've had enough of drugs. Good. I had enough of drugs. I've had young people ask me, did you do marijuana in high school? I did. I did. Don't tell the Navy that. They may go back and they asked me if I did, and I said no, and I got in. But I did. And they find themselves in prison. How do I get back to where I was? Life was good when I was with mom and dad. Mom and dad helped me. They took care of me. I took care of everything. My needs were met. We went on vacation. We did wonderful things. And now I find myself in prison. And part of their journey is how do you get back? That's what following the way of righteousness or sin does. It leads you to greater freedom or greater imprisonment. That's what it does. It astounds me that people come up here because of how beautiful it is, and then they do drugs, which impedes their ability to, rec- to enjoy it. I'm just astounded by that. I travel all over the country, and it used to be when I traveled around the country, people say, where are you from? I'd say, Colorado. And they'd say, oh, what a, what a beautiful place. How wonderful that is. Wow, what's it like living there? Now, for the last couple of years of where I travel, where are you from, Colorado? Oh, you're the guys that legalize drugs, right? I'm ashamed. I'm just being honest with you. I'm ashamed because I have this psalm right here. The person who meditates on God's law is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. This is a metaphor for life. You want to find life? Follow the Lord. Now, sadly, we have created the image that following the Lord is all about rules and regulations. It's not. It's not. That's not what following the Lord is about. Following the Lord is about this right here. It's like a tree planted by streams of water. We find strength. We find fruit. We find prosperity. We find happiness. We find freedom. We find all energy. We find life. We find all these things right here. Then he goes on. Not so with the wicked. They're like chaff, and the wind blows them away. So the tree's planted. Chaff is rolling along the ground, and the wind just takes it and blows it away. Not dependable. Ask our employers up here what it's like to hire people. I shouldn't say to hire people, to keep people hired. It's a different problem. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The assembly of the righteous, that's where these psalms were sung. Right there. This is what we have right here. This is the assembly of the righteous. We're looking at it right here. 
These people will not tolerate that. They won't stand with us. There's that, that language again. They won't stand with us. I get it. I get it. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. In the ancient wisdom literature, life was conceived of as a journey. It still is in many of the uh, Mediterranean nations, the Eastern nations. We don't think so much that way here. As many of you know, I practice Taekwondo, and uh, it's a journey. When I started eight years ago, the master that I started under said, are you ready to begin a journey? I've been doing it for eight years, and it's a journey. Many of you have done some form of martial arts, and you know what I'm talking about, the language. That's the way the ancients conceived of it. It's a journey. It's a journey. And so you have a choice. Which way are you going to choose? I can't choose for you. That's what I tell our young people. It doesn't matter what I think. I already know my faith. (laughs) What matters is what you think. Which journey are you on? Which way are you going to choose? Are you going to choose the way of the righteous, or are you going to choose the way of the sinner? That's your choice. And you know what? You find out the answer to that in the very, very little things that you do. Very little things. I never will forget, some of you have heard this story many, many, many years ago. I worked in internal auditing, and uh, one day Nancy came home and gave me, she doesn't remember this happening, it's so funny, because it was such a pivotal point in my life. She came home and gave me a bag of pens she bought at the store. She said, what are the pens for? And she said, well, you use her, she had grown up, her dad had been a vice president for XL Energy, and so uh, she said, uh, she said, these pens, because you're using company pens all the time, they're in your pocket. I said, what's the problem with that? She goes, what does it say on it? So I pulled the pen out, said, for official and company use only. And she said, and I said, what do I use, a quarter's worth of ink in a year? I never forget her response. That's all your integrity's worth? She doesn't even remember that. That's all your integrity is worth? I never will forget that question. I took him, put him in the off, in my drawer, and, the, and, the, and I said, no, it's worth a lot more than that. I decided if I'm going to sell out my integrity, I'm going for $5 million. <laughs> Forget the quarter. And so now, fast forward about two or three months, and my supervisor walks in. My office is at the other end of the building. She goes, I forgot my pen. Can I borrow a pen? So I pull up the desk, and she goes, what are all these pens here for? I said, oh, Nancy brought some home from the store and put them in there. She goes, why? We supply you pens. I said, I know, but I use this pen all the time at home. I don't pay attention when I use it. She goes, oh, okay. So she walks out. When she gets to the door, she stops. Now, she's not a Christian, and she turns around, and she says, that's why I promoted you three times. I never worry about your integrity even in the smallest things. That's where your belief in Christ gets worked out. I'm not trying to make a legalist out of you. Don't hear that. I'm certainly not a legalist. I love breaking the rules. Okay? I'm one of the first ones to break rules. But think about integrity. What are you going to choose? Which way? The way of the righteous, which the Lord watches over and therefore protects, or the way that leads to destruction? You're being invited into, with this psalm, the very first psalm, you're being invited to make the decision. Do you want to follow the Lord or not? I can't choose for you. I'm not even going to try. I'm not going to try to manipulate you into it or persuade you. It's your choice. If you're invited into it and you accept the invitation, next Sunday we'll go to Psalm 2 and we'll start the journey. That's the next journey. By the way, the New Testament authors held up Christ as the only one who was truly righteous, he becomes the perfect model of this psalm right here. We get a glimpse 
in the littlest things and the big things. A cross is a big one. But in the little things too, he was steadfast. He did what was asked. And he experienced greater joy than we did because that is the way to happiness. Blessed is the one. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for giving us this ancient literature, the hymn book, if you will, of these, uh, these ancient peoples that we're trying to figure out like we are today, who you are and how to love you well. Thank you for recording their heart, their songs, their joys, their sadnesses, their angers, their frustrations, their hopes, their dreams, their disappointments. Thanks for recording for us their feelings when they felt victorious and their feelings when they were defeated. It gives us a glimpse, Lord, of how to love you even better. And help us, Lord, as we spend the summer looking at the Psalms to draw closer to you and find better language and even better words to express our faith and our love for you. We pray these things in your son's name who did go the way of righteousness as an example for us and a sacrifice. Jesus, amen. I'm gonna ask the ushers to come take an offering. Uh, for those of you that are visitors, the last two things we do in just in response is we take an offering and we do communion together as a church.